Uh, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 6, if you're not already there. As I was getting ready, uh, the first thing I wrote down, uh, I never know how to start exactly out, so I'll just tell you what I wrote down. And This is uh, hopefully an encouragement to you. It's a good word. But we live in a broken and an evil world. All right, I heard some chuckles. All right, that was good. And I can say that as that it's a good word. I can say that with a little smile, and I can be a little facetious about that because we're in church today, and as the body of Christ gathered together, we are resting in the light of Christ, and no matter how dark and how evil it is out there, uh, if you are found in Jesus, as the book of Daniel uh, goes to great lengths to prove, then you don't have to fear anything that is evil, anything that is dark, or anything that seems greater than the power of God, because there is nothing greater than the power of God. When the Israelites were first taken to Babylon, uh, the first group that went, Daniel was part of that, and he was a young man. And it wasn't all the Israelites that were taken away, it was just some and mainly leaders and higher-up families, and Daniel was from the line of David, so he was someone who would have been sought after because the Babylonians wanted to take anybody influential from Israel and change them into good Babylonians who would then go back maybe one day and help ensure that Israel would toe the line with the empire of Babylon. So Daniel and his three friends that we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken. And, and you know the story. They, these men, these young men, were put into a training program and... Babylon really tried to change them into good Babylonians, into people who would promote the Babylonian way, into men who would honor the king uh, as all good Babylonians should and who would have Babylon's best interest at heart. And what we've seen so far uh, in the first five chapters and what we're going to see again in this sixth chapter is that despite that, Despite the indoctrination of Babylon, despite the attempts to uh, eradicate God's name, that the people of God, the true faithful servants, not only lived, but thrived in Babylon. So, as we look at Daniel chapter 6, it's a kind of a mirror image of Daniel chapter 3, which I got to talk about a couple weeks ago, and that's the fiery furnace, right? That's the chapter on that, you remember that? This story is going to play out, I mean, almost exactly the same way. Just with Daniel this time. He wasn't really present at that in chapter 3, but now here he is in chapter 6. It's, um, it's, a, it's a mirror image. And it's, uh, it's a climactic, or it's an epic example that God wants his people to see that no matter what, he is in charge. So through the first six chapters of Daniel, I hope you take away these two things. And this is what it really is all about. And the rest of the book is about this too, but uh, specifically in the lives of Daniel and God's people, God wants you to know two things, two absolute truths that carry through every age, every era, whoever's in charge of whatever kingdom you live in, he wants you to know these two things. Number one, that God is in complete control of all things. And he's not just in control of it. He's not just sort of directing things. He's not just saying, okay, I hope we get to this point. He, is, he has the absolute power and final say on how everything 
plays out. So whoever is in charge of Babylonian, in whatever chapter we're reading in Daniel, they're there because, or in Bab- Babylon, they're there because God put them there. They have as much power as God lets them have. Now, if you're an Israelite and you have been living most of your life in Babylon away from your home and you're assimilating into that culture, that should be a huge encouragement to you to know that your God really holds all the power. So that's the first thing that Daniel is trying to spell out for us because we need to not forget that because today in our own kingdom and in the empire that we live in, sometimes it seems like God isn't in control or sometimes it seems like God is not there. Sometimes it seems like he's too quiet or absent or looking away for a second, but it's still absolutely true that God is in complete control of everything that goes on in Babylon, in America, in Europe, in whatever part of the world, at whatever time, he is actively working. And the second thing is this, and it comes right out of that. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all these guys are shining examples of this truth that no matter what situation you face, no matter how insurmountable the power and the evil seems over your life, you can have victory in any situation. And I want to read something from Jeremiah really quick. This is, um, this is something that uh, Jeremiah said to the Israelites right before they were taken away into Babylon. So Daniel would have heard this. He would have heard this. This is what Jeremiah said to the people. He said, listen, if you're going you're, you're to be taken into Babylon, here's how you need to live as the people of God. In verse 5, he says this in Jeremiah 29. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And then then verse 7 says this. And here's your job in Babylon. Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. Jeremiah says that if you're a servant of God and you find yourself in a hostile environment, your job is not to just put your head down and hope that you get through it and wait till God comes and fixes everything, but you have an active duty to be present in your situation and to be working and faithfully honoring God in everything you do. So that's where we pick up with Daniel in chapter 6. That's what he's doing right now. So uh, last week we talked about Belshazzar and uh, this king, he was a couple of kings down from Nebuchadnezzar, right? And one thing is true in Babylon that we see throughout all of Daniel is that there is always change and political upheaval going on. There's always someone new coming in, taking over, and trying to rule how they want to rule. And it's no different here in verse 6. Belshazzar was killed, right? Daniel said he went and interpreted his dream and said, you're going to die tonight. He was killed, and then a new ruler takes over. And in verse uh, 31 of chapter 5, it says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, all new now. Babylon isn't the same Babylon that it was when Daniel got there. Now it's someone new. And then in verse 1 of of chapter 6, it it says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or leaders, to be over the whole kingdom, uh, uh, government political leaders. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer 
no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So Darius comes, and oh, just a quick side note here. Um, since we talk about this as we've been talking about Daniel, we've been talking about his critics, right? And his critics today and people who want to look at Daniel and say, well, this can't be uh, inspired, uh, God-breathed uh, God words. It can't be true because historically things are off. Uh, there's no historical record right now of anybody named Darius ruling uh, Babylon at that time. But that doesn't mean that this account is false. Because what we do know is that Darius was probably a title given to this new ruler who was uh, ruling in Cyrus's stead before Cyrus the Persian came to take over. So there was a general that Nebuchadnezzar had who, ended up, who saw the writing on the wall when Persia was coming to take over Babylon. And instead of staying a good Babylonian, he defected and he went over and he helped Persia take over the kingdom of Babylon. And so it's more than reasonable to believe that that general was named by Cyrus, the Persian, uh, Darius, and he was supposed to be this interim ruler until Persia was ready to come over finally and rule from Babylon. That's a side note. Anyway, so Darius is setting up his kingdom, and he realizes that this is a terrible place, right? Everybody's pretty evil. It's a pagan empire. So we need to have a lot of leadership who's going to make sure that the king gets what the king needs to get and the government continues to work the way it needs to work. So he sets up three uh, super governors over, the, over Babylon, and these guys are going to be in charge of making sure the little uh, parts of Babylon all do what they're supposed to do, pay their taxes, honor the king, whatever they need to do to be good Babylonians, that's what they're supposed to do. And so um, Daniel is one of these three governors. And he is so good at his job, he is so different from everyone else, that Darius looks at him and says, you know what, I'm just going to make Daniel the second in command. He can just really basically rule over everything, and all i got to do is ever talk to him and see what's going on, because I know how honest and faithful Daniel is. Now, this is proof right there that Daniel took Jeremiah's words to heart, that he didn't just come into Babylon and put his head down and wait until God was going to do something, that Daniel was actively participating in his situation. And Daniel was so faithful to God, and that was so good for the kingdom of Babylon that the king took notice. Well, as you can imagine, uh, and this is true, we saw this in chapter 3, right? When the people of God stand for God and stand for goodness and stand for righteousness and stand for honesty, that everybody else around them who isn't those things starts to get uncomfortable. So, what do these other leaders do? The governors and the satraps in verse 4 sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. They can't find an issue. They want to get rid of him. They're threatened by Daniel. If Daniel's in charge of everything, they have to tow his line, and his line is a line of righteousness and godliness. And that doesn't sit well with people who don't want to follow God, or who don't just want to be decent <laughs> human beings. So they have to get rid of him, but they can't find any way to get rid of him. So look at what they say. Then these men said in verse 5, we're not going to find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. When I was studying this passage, I went through and, and highlighted the different characters. There's three main characters in this chapter, the, the king, Darius, um, these other leaders as a group, and Daniel. 
and I highlighted their conversations in different, uh, different colors. So if I had orange for the, these other leaders, and these other leaders, their conversations take up most of the entire chapter. Like, they're pretty much the main character that this focuses on. The next is Darius. He speaks a little bit. And then there's only one thing we ever hear from Daniel in this whole chapter. He only says one thing. But as I was uh, highlighting this and looking at it, you can see the hearts of each of these different characters, what they truly believe. And the hearts of these evil men are revealed right here. They know that Daniel is so purposeful and faithful and obedient to his God that they realize their only way of getting him out of power, of getting rid of him, is to attack his obedience and faithfulness to God. And that's what they spend the whole chapter trying to do, and they're almost successful. I mean, it really is brilliant, their plan that they come up with, because they have no other leg to stand on against Daniel, except when they turn his faith to the true God of the world against him, or what they think is turning it against him. So here's what they do. They, uh, they all go before the king. Now, Daniel's not there, but they all go before the king, and they say, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, all of us together have consulted, and we want to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god, whoever prays to any god or man except the king for a month, for 30 days, then they get to be cast into a den of lions, executed, basically. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Basically, they're like, look, king, you're so great. We love you. We want to honor you. You are a god, so no one should ever pray to anybody but you for the next month, right? That sounds good. And the king's like, yeah, that does sound really good. And by the way, if they do, they need to be executed on the spot. And let's make sure it's a law, King Darius, because the Persians are pretty good at keeping laws. If, if even the king, if the king writes a law, he is not allowed to change it. That was the way that the Persians ruled. So they put, this, uh, they put this offer out to Darius. They're stroking his ego. They're saying, look, you're so great. Let's make sure everybody's on board with that, and they only pray to you. Uh, what's interesting is that Darius does it in verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And here's why it's interesting. Not because that seems out of character, because obviously that's how these guys act, right? But what's interesting to me is that, first of all, this King Darius knew Daniel, and so he knew that Daniel only prayed to Daniel's God. He knew Daniel because he was going to put him over his kingdom. You don't just pick any guy like that. You know them, and you know what they're about. So this plan is so evil that these leaders must have gone to him and said, oh, by the way, Daniel signs off on this. Right? Because if they didn't, why would the king want to get rid of his best guy? So it's so evil and so insidious that they say, Daniel's okay with this, and we want to do this for 30 days. And the king says, well, that sounds good because I like me. So that's okay, let's do it. It's interesting to me. Now, here's something I want to say about that. Evil is seeking to destroy good. That's Satan's main priority in this world, is to kill good. 
And you can see how insidious this is in Daniel, right? These men were out to get the good, faithful servant of God. Are you prepared for evil that might be coming after you? If you're a child of God here this morning, you are in contention with the world and with the devil and with sin. And it might not want you around speaking truth into people's lives. Are you prepared for the attacks of the enemy? What we see next is that Daniel was absolutely prepared. We've looked at his life from uh, the beginning of his time in Babylon all the way up till now. Now, this is many years later. Daniel's a much older man now from when he was a kid who said, I didn't want to eat, I don't want to eat those, I don't want to eat those foods um, because that's against God's law and, and I don't think I can eat that and honor God at the same time. It's, he's come a long way from that, uh, from that beginning time. But Daniel has remained faithful in everything he's done. In every chapter, right, we hear, Daniel, go talk to Daniel. Get Daniel in here. Daniel knows what to do. Daniel's a guy who's different. Daniel's somebody you can trust. Daniel has God on his side. It's everywhere. Daniel's faithful obedience throughout his life, his consistent faithfulness, has kept him prepared for any evil that might try to destroy him. And friends, that's a lesson that we need to take. If we are, if we're going through this Christian life and we think, well, I haven't really faced that much adversity, so you know what? Nothing's really trying to get me. That is a lie that the devil wants you to believe. Satan will use anything to take anybody down who says they believe in God. And you and I must be prepared like Daniel. And the only way Daniel was prepared, his greatest defense and his greatest offense against that was continuous faithful obedience to honoring God in his life. And here's how it played out. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed... By the way, he would have known instantly that he was marked for execution. I mean, he's not an idiot, right? <laughs> he knows these guys are after him. And he knows exactly what's happened. And he probably heard that, that gets, this law gets passed and he sits back and he thinks, well, obviously this is about me. So what's he do? He doesn't go and he doesn't try and talk to the king. He doesn't go and he doesn't try and get his buddies together to take out these other guys. He doesn't try and get another law passed. Here's what he does. In his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now listen to this. Here's an interesting detail. As was his custom since early days. The plan, the way, uh, the, the, the victory that these evil leaders... Uh, the, the way they win is if Daniel is faithful to God. I mean, that's why it's such a genius plan, is if Daniel remains faithful to God. And I think Daniel knew that. And rather than try and work around it, I mean, because there was other options for Daniel, right? He could have closed his windows. could have changed the times he prayed. He could have said, I'm just going to pray in my heart. Maybe he's at work one day and he says, I'm just going to take a break real quick. And he goes and he prays somewhere where no one is ever going to know. He could have worked around this issue for 30 days and then went back to what he was supposed to do or what he felt was his way of honor, how God wanted to be honored. Instead of doing all that, Daniel goes right up at the same time that he's always done it, ever since the beginning, ever since he got to Babylon, maybe even before then. He goes right up to his, his window 
he opens it up, and he just faithfully does, he faithfully worships God in the way he has done it since the beginning. Knowing that he will be killed for it. So guess what? The guys are hanging out waiting for this to happen in verse 11. They found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. So they instantly, I mean, I'm sure they're doing their victory dance, right? And then they run back to the king and say, hey, hey, remember that law like a little bit ago that, you know, you said that had to, everybody had to pray to you? Remember that? You can imagine that scene, right? Like where the guys are like, yeah, you remember that thing that you did the other day? And he's like, yeah, I just did it. Like, oh, yeah, right. Well, Daniel just broke the law. And you can see this. I mean, you can imagine this from the, from the account. The king's face falls. I mean, you, you, get that, you ever get that feeling when you realize something and you're so sick to your stomach? You realize you've been tricked? You realize something's played out differently than you thought it was going to play out? Darius knows that these guys just tricked him. And he gets nauseous. And he says, I cannot believe I didn't see this coming. They have condemned my greatest servant. I have to kill the person. I have to kill Daniel, the one who I wanted to set over my entire kingdom. And he knows he's just made the greatest mistake of his life. Verse 14, and the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. So after that moment of nauseousness and he realizes, oh my gosh, I have to kill him, then he tries from now on until the, uh, the end of the story, Darius is focused on how can I save Daniel because he realizes how important Daniel is to the kingdom because Daniel has been so faithful to God. So he tries to figure out, he spends all day, how am I going to do this? And he labored till the going down of the sun. He's like putting off the execution, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. How can I figure out how to save Daniel? And then the guys come back, and they're probably watching him all day, rubbing their hands, just smiling. <laughs> yeah, you'll never be able to fix this. They come to him at the end of the day, and they say, you know, O king, it, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statue which the king establishes can be changed. Like, you can't do that. You absolutely cannot change this. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel, and they cast him into the den of the lions. Now this is interesting. The king spoke saying to Daniel, listen, Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, that's interesting, he knows that Daniel always serves his God. He will deliver you. It's like this statement. It's, it's, when you try to like make a situation that's terrible a little bit better, right? You try to put some up, the silver lining that you try, we try to find. The silver lining to Darius is, listen, Daniel, I have seen some amazing things happen. I know who you are, and I've seen how your God works. So he's got to deliver you. That's the only way out of this. And he's putting his hope a little bit in that. Then the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Once this big slab, so it's in this pit, right, where the, the lions are, and Daniel gets thrown in, and then they put this massive stone over the opening so you can't see in, and no one could possibly get out, and nothing could get in, and then the king puts his seal on it, 
meaning that if, any, if, this, if he comes back and the seal's broken, or somebody notices the, the seal's broken, then they're going to hunt down whoever that was and kill them too because this man has to die in the lion's den. It's been decreed. So the king goes back to his palace and he cannot sleep. He can't eat. Uh, he doesn't want his uh, music at night to help him fall asleep. He doesn't want anything. He is so sick over what is happening that he's up all night wringing his hands about how he could have been so easily duped and how he could lose such a great servant like Daniel. So as soon as the light hit, comes up in the morning, he ri- uh, the king rose very early and he went in haste to the den of the lions. He runs back to see what's happened to Daniel. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. I mean, he's assuming that he's dead. There's no way in this pit of lions who weren't always fed very well, uh, when meat, fresh meat's in front of them, there's no way that they're not going to rip him to shreds and he's going to be dead. And he said this, hoping for a miracle. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to, you, to deliver you from the lions? Now, here's the only thing we hear from Daniel in this entire chapter. Daniel spoke. Notice how he, what he says and how he says it. O king, live forever. Back uh, when the uh, evil leaders were trying to come up with this plot and they went to the king and, uh, and they, they said, hey, guess what? Daniel broke that law. Ha ha. When they said that, the first thing they said to the king was, oh, by the way, Daniel doesn't care about you. Daniel's a traitor to the realm. Daniel has no respect for you, king, because he broke your law. And the first thing Daniel says when he comes out of the den is, O king, live forever. Daniel not once has ever disrespected or dishonored uh, his king, uh, the king of Babylon, the rulers in authority over him. He's not done that. And he doesn't come out saying, how could you do that to me? He doesn't come out saying, I thought we were friends to some degree. I thought you cared about me. I thought you wanted me to rule. I thought, I look what I've done for you. He doesn't come out saying that. He doesn't come out saying, let's get these guys. He doesn't come out saying that at all. He comes out and he says, O king, live forever. I honor you. But then he does this. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. He honors the king, but he shows his true allegiance to God. God is the first authority in Daniel's life that Daniel honors and lives for continually. This whole thing is about breaking laws, but Daniel says, look, the truth, the fact of the matter is I broke nothing. I've broken no law because I've been faithful and and I've honored God in everything I've done. And then he says this, and also, king, I've done nothing wrong before you. That law that was enacted was enacted really as an attack on God because it was an attack on his servants. And any law that is enacted as an attack on God, no uh, child of God is at all ever required to obey because our first allegiance has to be to the law of God. And when you obey the laws of God, you are honoring the laws of men. Whether the king realizes it or not, whether he ever makes sense of what Daniel says here or not, because, well, yeah, but you broke the law, so what? Whether he makes sense of that or not, the fact of the matter is Daniel's faithfulness to God is faithfulness to the other leaders in his life. So the king was exceedingly glad for him, 
breathed a sigh of relief and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel gets out. No injuries on him. Remember what it said about the guys turning the furnace. Not even uh, a hair on their heads was burned. Nothing. They were the exact same as when they came out as when they went in. Same with Daniel. And no injury whatever was found on him because Daniel believed in God. So just like those other chapters, here's what happens. This, this always happens, right? So the king who like sees this miracle and comes so close to the presence of God through, his ser- through uh, God's faithful servants always does this, right? Uh, he honors God. So first he deals with the evil leaders. And Eastern justice back then was if you falsely accuse somebody and you're found out, then you suffer their same fate. And because it was a covenantal uh, type of relationship with leaders, then that meant your families were also subject to execution as well. So uh, the king calls for these guys. He calls for their kids and their wives, and he says, you die now. So he throws them in, and it's a very different set of lions that meets the, that, those people than it is that met Daniel because before they even touch the ground, they're ripped to shreds. So then Darius has this... Uh, this uh, kind of like a, a poem, song, worship decree here right now. He says, I make a decree. This goes out to everybody in Babylon. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. And his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, Daniel's faithfulness was so powerful, because God was the power behind it, right? Was so powerful that even Darius, this pagan king, who for 30 days wanted to be prayed to only as a god, was able to speak truth about the nature of the Lord. He is the living God and steadfast forever. If you just saw this and you didn't know who was saying it, you might think this is like in a psalm or, or Daniel was writing this or uh, David was writing this or maybe Paul was writing this. Like the faithfulness of Daniel, the obedience and honoring of God was so powerful and evangelistic that even Darius knew the truth about God. I don't know if he ever decided to follow God. I, I, I doubt it, but... They really didn't, you know. Nebuchadnezzar had to go through some other stuff before he finally got it. But the name of God is magnified in Babylon, and Babylon is a symbol of the ultimate enemy of God. And God is so powerful and in so much control that he can take the ultimate enemy of God and make it one of the greatest sounding boards for his majesty. I mean, it is amazing to think that little Daniel from little Israel who couldn't put up a fight or ever hope of withstanding these major empires rise to such great prominence and power in these kingdoms and everybody knows that God is in control. So, verse 28, the end of this uh, first half of the book of Daniel the end of the historical stories and the character studies and the, uh, the, the, the episodes of God working in the lives of his people in Babylon says this, and it says, So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
just so you know that as Daniel finished out his life in Babylon, never going back to Jerusalem, never going back to his hometown, as he finished, remaining a high leader, remaining someone of honor and respect, remaining somebody of power in this evil pagan kingdom, just so you know, Daniel prospered. He wasn't kicked out. He wasn't done away with. Uh, Darius didn't get rid of him. Cyrus, the guy who came next, didn't get rid of him. So he wasn't there. He doesn't know. Maybe he heard, but, you know, that's kind of unbelievable, right? Coming out of a lion's den. These guys uh, kept Daniel in power because Daniel was faithful to God and God prospered him. In uh, the book of Samuel, in, in 15, chapter 15, don't have to turn there, but Saul is trying to honor God, and he's not doing a very good job because he doesn't understand what God wants from his children. Saul thinks, if I win enough victories and sacrifice enough goats and lambs, that's going to cut it. But Samuel has to come to, to Saul because God's gracious, and he sends Samuel, and he says, Samuel, go tell Saul exactly what I want from my people. I don't want great victories. I don't want great, I don't want uh, lambs. I don't want pigeons. I don't want grain. I don't want all your stuff. What I want is simply consistent obedience. I want you to love to do what I want you to do. I want you to be all about honoring me. And Daniel is a shining example of that for us. In the midst of of a horrible, terrible culture that's, that at every, uh, at every turn was seeking to destroy him. Evil is real and powerful, but God is the ultimate power. God can c- overcome anything. And that same God is the God that you and I serve today. And that same power is available to you and I today. And we can uh, rest and be hopeful and utilize that power through simply obeying. Not just once, not just twice. Start there. But consistent, faithful obedience. That's what God wants. What does God want you to do, and are you doing it? And if you're doing it, nothing can stand against you. And when I say nothing, I mean, I don't know if you ever stand before emperors or uh, these pagan kings who are known for their cruelty, and I don't know if you're standing next to a lion's den with these lions who want to eat you, or if you're standing next to a fire that's so hot that the minute you get within a certain radius of it, you're turned to ash. But those guys who did stand there, Daniel and Shadrach and those other guys and these Israelites who were surrounded by evil, brutal evil that was trying to kill them, they come through. They make it through. They're not harmed not once because the greatest power that they fear is the power of God and they're not concerned about the power of man. So in your life, be convinced and believe and trust and live as though you know that God is in control and that you are given the victory over anything that comes against you and would seek to tear you away from God. And you can be assured and rest in that through your faithful, consistent obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of Daniel. Father, for a man who was put in so many hard places, 
a man who spent every day making hard decisions, whether or not to honor you, whether or not to compromise, whether or not to honor the king. But Father, I thank you that he always chose to honor you first. And Father, I pray that we would do the same thing. You promise victory no matter what. Whether it's in this life or the next, Lord, victory through Jesus is guaranteed to your faithful servants. So, Father, I pray that we would be known as faithful servants, that when people talk about us, they would say, uh, the one who serves God continually. They would know where we stand as far as who we worship and who we honor and whose allegiance uh, is first in our hearts. I pray, Father, that that be true of everybody here. And I pray, Father, that through our examples, Lord, that the name of Christ would be magnified and would be spread around to those who are searching, those who are in need of hope, those who are overcome by the evil of sin. Father, I pray that that would be our greatest evangelistic tool, is our faithful obedience in the big things and in the little things. We thank you for your power and that you're with us and you don't leave us alone and you're walking alongside of us and you carry us when you need to carry us. We thank you for that. We love you. In your name, amen. Let's all stand together. As we close the service, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Right? The wages of sin is death. Right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And so our invitation for you is to come to Christ this morning. So we want you to recognize your sin, acknowledge it, if you've never done that. If you don't believe in your heart that you're a sinner, uh, you'll get nowhere with this. But God's invitation is for you to acknowledge your sin and come to Christ. And he'll forgive you because he personally died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And so if you'll respond in faith to him, uh, you will see the wonderful application of his shed blood in your personal forgiveness. Amen.